Please remain standing as you're able. How does one move from fear to faith? Well, Abram makes that movement in our scripture this morning. But first, let me pick up where we left off last week. As Mark uh, read to you, Abram divided up the land and gave the good land uh, to Lot, who settled in Sodom. Well, Lot ran into trouble with Sodom in Sodom as uh, marauding kings came and captured Lot, his family, and a number of the citizens and spoils um, of Sodom and took them off into slavery. So Abram rallied troops, 318 servants, actually untrained military people, and led them and in battle defeated the five kings and rescued all the people who had been taken into slavery along with the goods. On his way back, he stopped and met the king of Salem, king of Jerusalem, whose name was Melchizedek. And Abram gives him 10% of all that Abram has. And then before the chapter ends, the king of Sodom says, I just can't thank you enough for what you've done. I want you to take a reward and take spoils. And Abram says, I'm not taking anything from you because I don't want it said that you made me rich. What I have comes from God. And we pick up the story. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. It's interesting to me that the Bible doesn't spend much time or energy on the faith struggles of those who really don't believe in God and whether they'll ever come to belief. But the Bible spends a great deal of energy on people like you and me who believe in God and feel like we've been called by God, but we struggle in our life and we struggle with our faith. And so it shouldn't surprise us, since most of the great people of Scripture have struggled, that Abraham, the model of our faith, will find struggle as well. Moses struggles with fear when he's told to go face the Pharaoh. Elijah struggles with his faith when he is uh, to face the wicked queen Jezebel. Gideon struggles uh, with fear when God calls him to lead uh, the people into battle against the Midianites. And Jesus himself has moments of struggle and difficulty in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so it's not surprising to us that Abram, who for years has journeyed with God on the promise of a child that has not come yet and has gone through a time of great military victory, comes to a moment of struggle and fear. We know he's afraid because the first thing God says to Abram is, don't be afraid, which raises the question for me, what's Abram afraid about? Well, it could be that when God is present in any room, uh, those of us with any common sense at all will immediately be afraid. And I suppose that's a possibility, but Abram's been with God before. So what else could Abram be afraid of? Maybe he's afraid of retaliation by the five kings he's defeated. 318 untrained men have gone with Abram and they've won this battle. Perhaps he's looking back over his shoulder realizing those five kings he's defeated may indeed want revenge and want the spoils of war that the king of Sodom has taken back for themselves. Perhaps he fears retaliation, so it's no wonder that God says to him, I'll be your shield, Abram. 
I don't know if you've ever feared retaliation or thought that once you had won a victory, that the victory might only be temporary. Perhaps you battled a disease and it looks like you won. Perhaps you overcame an addiction. Perhaps a relational break has mended and yet you fear that that victory will be lost. Perhaps you've faced that like Abram. It could be that Abram is just afraid that the best that will ever happen to him has already taken place. That in fact he's already received his opportunity at reward and missed it. You see, what's interesting is when Abram wins this battle, the first thing he does is Abram takes 10% of his estate, not what he's won because he won't keep anything of what he's won. What he started out with, 10% of his estate he gives away to King Melchizedek in the first biblical example of a tithe. And, and maybe he's rethinking that decision. I don't know if you've ever had the uh, feeling that once the offering plate has left you and your check has gone in it, that you want to rethink that decision. Well, who knows? Maybe he thinks he should have grabbed his reward when he could. King of Sodom offered him all sorts of uh, rewards, and he said, no, I'm not going to let you make me rich. It's no wonder God says to him, Abram, I'll be your reward. Maybe Abram is worried that maybe things in life are about as good as they're going to get. He's had his shot, and he passed it up. Maybe. Or maybe he's just afraid that all of this journeying with God is just pointless. The victories, the triumphs, the sojourns will lead to nothing because the thing he wants and needs more than anything else, a child, a son, is, doesn't seem to be in the offing. He has that fear perhaps some of us have from time to time that when it's all said and done, the pursuits of our life will have been pointed out to be in vain or pointless. Maybe Abram fears that. I don't know. All I know is that he's afraid. But what interests me is that in this passage, he moves from fear to all of a sudden faith. And I'm wondering how that happens. And so I look to see what God does. And what jumps out at me immediately is what God doesn't do. When he finds Abraham in fear, he doesn't start to argue or persuade Abraham that he shouldn't be afraid. He doesn't say, now, Abraham, look at all the stuff I've done for you. Who bailed you out of Egypt? Who gave you victory over Sodom? Who did? God doesn't do any of that. There's no sort of persuasion or argument here. And even more surprising to me, there's, God gives him no evidence. Nothing upon which, nothing physical upon which to change Abraham's perceptions. It would be nice that if after God visited Abraham, Abraham might look at his reflection in a pool of water and see that suddenly he's become 20 years younger and that he and his wife thought to be too old to have a child suddenly aren't too old anymore. That would be nice. Or it would be nice that, come at, that Sarah would come running out of the tent and all of a sudden she would announce that she's pregnant. But none of that happens. Abraham gets no evidence to change his mind. And that fascinates me because most of the time when I struggle with my faith, I don't get any sort of immediate evidence either. I don't get an automatic change in my condition uh, that would persuade me back toward faith. I'm just not that fortunate. Fortunate is one of my favorite preachers, Fred Craddock, who talks about what happened to him one day. He was on an airplane back in the old days when planes were divided into smoking and non-smoking sections. He was in the non-smoking section, but the guy next to him was smoking. So he pressed a button and called for the flight attendant, a lovely, friendly young woman who came and said, may I help you? And he pointed at the guy next to him and and she said, sir, this is a non-smoking section. You really must put that cigarette out. And the man ignored her. Well, this continued on. So Fred presses the button again. Uh, the flight attendant comes down, he points to the guy still smoking, 
and said, Sir, really, you can't be smoking in the non-smoking section. And I found a seat for you in the smoking section, row 36, an aisle seat, uh, seat A. Takes cigarette out of his mouth and just blows rings in her direction. Puts it back in. Well, he's not listening to reason. She's got work to do. So she comes back after a while with the trays of drinks and snacks. And suddenly they hit turbulence over the Rocky Mountains. And bam, the tray of drinks that she's holding flies out of her hand and lands in the lap and douses the guy who's been smoking the cigarette. And the lovely young flight attendant trips, falls, and falls into the lap of Fred. And his response to all this was, don't tell me there's not a God. (laughs) Well, I love that, but it just doesn't happen to me. I just don't get that evidence. And neither does Abraham. All he gets, two things. One, he gets a word. He gets God's word for it. You'll have a child. Well, we might do well to pause and think for a moment that when God speaks in the Bible, typically things seem to happen. We're told that the heavens and earth were created on the very word of God. And then he gets a symbol. He gets a sign. God calls him outside the tent and says, come here, let me show you something, Abram. Points up to all the stars in the skies and says, count them if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. I've always wondered about the sign of the stars. I mean, it's a wonderful sign, very impressive. But God's already shown him the sands on the seashore and said, count these, that's how many children you will have. What's so different about this sign? Well, I read this past week uh, that rabbis, Jews who have longed worked with the passage, make this observation, which uh, is, is interesting to me. And that is this. They remind us that Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldees. And if you're not brushed up on your ancient history, let me translate that for you. Basically, Abraham was a Babylonian. He came from a Babylonian area. And what you need to know about the Babylonians is they were brilliant people, an amazing civilization. The highest science that they had was astrology. They invented astrology. They invented the sign of the zodiac. And what the most learned people in Babylon taught others was that our lives are controlled by the zodiac. The things in our life that we want, desire, need, they're either in the stars or they're not. They're either in the cards for us by fate, by the stars, or they're not there. This is the sort of attitude that's reflected. You'll remember that famous line that Cassius says to Brutus and Julius Caesar, the fault, dear Brutus, lies not in our stars, but in ourselves. Well, that's sort of the attitude the Babylonians taught. The highest science that they had was the study of astrology. And so I believe the rabbi's correct when he says what's happening here is God is taking Abram out and saying, look, I am for you a child is not in the stars, according to the best that science and your past and your limitations have to offer, but I am blowing up the zodiac. I am turning on its head science and life and reality as you know it. The world in all of its wisdom says you cannot have a child. It's not in the cards for you. And I'm telling you that I am overturning that. I am telling you that I am bigger than the universe and all that is known. It's an amazing sign, really. God is saying, everything you know to this point is wrong. I am bigger than that. And then he goes on to this. And he says, now count them. And that's fascinating because for Abraham, all he wants to count to is what? He just wants to count to one. He just wants that one child. And so God is telling Abraham this. 
I am bigger than all that science in your past has to offer, say to you. And then God goes on to say, and my plans for you are bigger than you can even imagine. All you can think about is one. And I see millions. In fear, Abraham comes to God because he understands the reality of his day. He's not likely to have a child. He's not likely to get another chance at a financial reward. He's not likely to escape retribution from the kings he's defeated. And God is saying, I am bigger than the reality that you know. I am bigger than the science, the math, the psychology, the history. Fill in the discipline of your day. And I'm turning it upside down. And not only that. The plans I have for you are even bigger than you can imagine. And when Abraham gets caught into the vision of a God who's bigger than he is and plans that are bigger than he can imagine, he begins to understand that that's what faith is. It's about having a vision of a God who's bigger than you are and a purpose that is bigger than just your own problem at the moment. And as he gets caught up into that, he moves to faith. Story is told of a rabbi that lived after the days of Jesus. He used to walk around with two rocks in his hand, one in his left hand, one in his right hand. So one day his disciples asked him, what's the deal with the rocks? And he said, well, the rock in my left hand reminds me that I am dust and to dust I'll return. Well, that wasn't too cheery a thought. So they went ahead and asked him, well, what about the other one? Ah, the rock in my other hand, he said, reminds me that everything in the universe was created for me. And that's where we live in our life. Between the reality that there are certain things that sort of limit us in our existence, and there also the truth that God has plans and power that's bigger than we can even imagine. And as we get caught up in our struggles and lose the vision of a God who's bigger than we are, we lose faith. But when we get a vision of the size of God and the plans of God, We too move from fear to faith.